0: Okay, so, so this is our final uh, Talmud tish for the year. On Purim. <laughs> Next week we come back with the Hashem, with uh, Passover, with Pesach. So we're in Dafyud Gimel, Ahmed Aleph, page 13, side A. And we've been talking all about the heroine of the upcoming holiday, Esther, Esther Hamalka. And today we're going to read about her royal makeover. So we know she didn't want to go to the palace, but there wasn't much of a choice. And we also talked about how she kept time. It's almost like a, like a, a psychological abuse where these women were inducted into this, to this reality where they kind of lost their independence. They didn't even know what time it was, what day it was. And Esther has to kind of ingeniously figure out how to maintain her Jewish observances without making it obvious because Mordechai told her, Quiet, don't say anything. So we talked about that in the previous class, and now we're going to talk about Esther's diet. So she's Jewish, and she's righteous, so she's not going to eat not kosher food. So what's she going to eat in the palace? And if she says that she wants to eat only kosher, then it's a dead giveaway. It's a problem. Nobody asked this question. How did she do it? And nobody knew she was Jewish. And everybody was claiming that she was theirs. But if she had a kosher diet, it would have been so obvious. So the Gemara says in the Megillah, as we continue on the second chapter, I think it's verse 6, the Gemara says the following. The Megillah says that the Chamberlain, whose name was Haggai, or maybe hay people in Canada these days, so Hagar was a eunuch in case you don't know what a eunuch is and in case you think that society is so different to what it once was think again a eunuch was a very pretty boy who the king would decide to castrate so he had no worries of him abusing the woman but he would have more muscle mass and usually he was taller and stronger and he would be responsible for taking care of the woman but he was very feminine in nature so he was a feminine kind of guy the king had nothing to worry about him hitting on the people that he was interested in And this was not uncommon in the Middle East. There were sariseh melech Saris literally means a person is castrated. The nice name for them is eunuchs, royal eunuchs. Sometimes, in certain situations, some of these kings were so depraved that they used them not only to defend or protect their women; they also used them for alternate forms of intimacy as well. Uh, The eunuchs, you know, they did not have a a wonderful life. Nebuch these poor eunuchs. They were. They, they were not often doing this willingly. They were inducted into the quote-unquote royal service. They weren't asked if they liked it or not. Not much has changed in certain parts of the Middle East. And that, that was the end of the eunuch. They, they lived very nicely, though. They lived very pampered lives. They had, they had all the money, all the food, all the fun, everything. But their manhood, was, that was taken away from them. So the hey guy was a eunuch and a very very nice fellow. He's a very sweet guy. And he really took a liking to Esther. And he went out of his way to do everything for Esther. Most of the women who came in there were capricious and angry and, and conceited. And they thought that the world revolved around them, a bunch of beauty queens. And Esther had no interest in being there. She didn't want to be a beauty queen. She didn't want to win the contest. She wanted to go home. And Haggai really liked her. So the Megillah says that Haggai, the eunuch, was very nice to Esther. And he went out of his way to try to make her life a little bit easier. He understood that Esther was not particularly happy to be there. And, and and it says, He changed things up. So some understand this to be he moved her to a different part of the palace where she would be unmolested, or would have kind of her own her own uh, private area. Or, as you're soon going to see, the Gemara seems to suggest that he changed something in her diet. He gave her special care. So the Amaroyim, the sages of the Talmud, are now going to have a dispute about what exactly this means. What did he do for her when he gave her special food? Says so the Gemara, Omar Rav, Rav taught that the, what, what Haggai did that was unique was Shehe Michael Yehudi. He gave her Jewish food. And Jewish food would mean kosher food. Maybe it's even culturally Jewish food. It's interesting, it doesn't say Michael Kosher, it says Michael Yehudi. It doesn't say kosher food, it says Jewish food. What's the difference between kosher food and Jewish food? Mm-hmm. Jewish food. Kosher not kosher. Kosher, Jewish food cannot, can be kosher, sushi is not Jewish food, but huh? it's still kosher. Uh-huh. Right? Now, these days it's almost becoming Jewish. I think Jews <laughs> eat more sushi than people in Japan, but it's still not Jewish food, per se. So she lived on gefilte fish? Oh, so was it Chalantin gefilte fish? I, I don't know if it was European Jewish food. Maybe it was kiba and uh, couscous. <laughs> but you, you, whoever said that is exactly right. It doesn't mean she lived necessarily on kosher food. I'm sure it was kosher also. But Hegai's point was to feed her Jewish food. And this is how we understand that it not being a giveaway that Esther was Jewish. Let's take a look in Rashi. Let's see what Rashi says. Actually, Rashi does not say, but I saw this <laughs> elsewhere. Uh, the Ben Yehiyodah, or maybe so, so other, other Mepharshim say like this. Esther said, I don't know what nation I'm from, or I don't want to say what nation I'm from. But everybody knew that Mordechai had raised her. So it was Mordechai's cousin. Mordechai raised his cousin. They don't know that it was a relative. Mordechai made it out to be that he found the baby an abandoned baby, so he raised the baby. And because they didn't know that she was Jewish, because she didn't say she was Jewish, but they knew she grew up in Mordechai's house, Hegai figured if her diet is going to change, she lived in Mordechai's house, she must have been eating Jewish food. So Hagei figured he'll buy her Jewish food. He brought her Jewish food. Uh, a good amount of that Jewish food probably was kosher too. It's very hard to find trefa uh, chalant these days, right? Or, or knishes or kishker. I don't know whatever the kosher food was. But the chances are that if they were going to buy kosher food, so the kosher deli was actually kosher. And that's how Esther ate kosher food, but it wasn't presented as kosher food. The Ben Yoda says it was presented as Jewish food. Now, why would Haggai go out of his way? Because Haggai really liked Esther, and and Haggai was secretly rooting for Esther. He hoped she was going to win the contest. He hoped she was going to become the queen. And Haggai had a sense that a change of diet could be an unhealthy thing. If somebody's used to eating certain kind of food the whole life, which is probably not wrong. So he said, "Look, she's used to eating kosher food." Clearly, she knows how to watch a figure. She's very attractive, but she's used to eating a certain kind of food. So, I should get her whatever food she's used to. She's unhappy enough. She's out of sorts enough. And this way, Esther will be able to somewhat happily adjust. So, he got her her Jewish food, and this kind of worked out really well. Now, others point out that it was, no, it was actually kosher food. So, why isn't it called kosher food? And in the, the other Mepharshim say that there have always been people, non-Jews, who elected to eat kosher food. It's interesting to read this because I know non-Jewish people today who make a point of eating kosher food. Ask yourself why. Mm-hmm. Did you hear the latest reports like a few years ago of melamine and the macaroni? Like nobody knows it's coming out of China. And, and the amount of government supervision is so easy to supersede that a lot of people feel comfortable eating food it's kosher because they say it's another line of defense it went through an additional supervision i remember meeting a lady from the west indies once in the store many years ago and I, and she asked me if somebody's kosher and i asked her if she's jewish she says no i said why are you asking she says i only eat kosher food i'm not gonna put that garbage in my body she says Lisa, so wait. what it, kosher doesn't mean blessed she says to me right it means supervised right i said yeah so they can't just put whatever they want in there right i said yep Right? He yeah. said, I knew that. That's why I eat kosher food. <laughs> she was asking, is this kosher? Is this good kosher? Right? So people do that. So Haggai was trying to protect Esther because he was worried about Esther. And he didn't want all this junk mixed into the food, the ingredients. If he figured it was kosher food, would be, they would be watching the ingredients. So he actually got her kosher food. And this is like a hand of Hashem. Esther's in the palace. She's taken there for non-kosher reasons, but she's still trying to do the best she could. And Haggai, the eunuch, is worried about getting her kosher food, and he doesn't even know she's Jewish. He doesn't know she's Jewish. She didn't tell anybody she's Jewish. Esther does not say who her nation is. She doesn't say what her birth is. And Mordechai said, I don't know. Or well, wasn't speaking either. So therefore, Hagai kind of took very good care of her and unwittingly gave her exactly the food that she needed. This is the opinion of Rav. Now, Shmuel who is often the protagonist of Rav, who uh, Rav and Shmuel are the first generation of sages of the Talmud. They have many, many arguments about many different things. Shmuel says, Haggai hey, gave the best food that he would know is good. What did he think was the best? The finest? Pork. <laughs> That's Rav's opinion was kosher. But Shmuel's opinion was, Haggai hey, gave what he thought was good. He imagined, what would I like to eat? Pork chops. So, Hechila Kidle de Chazire. He gave her fat pieces of pork. Once upon a time, they didn't know how bad fat was, and saturated fat especially. He gave her pork. So, what did she do with this? Okay, so Rashi says that was all she had to eat. And because that's all she had to eat, she was either going to starve and die or stay alive. Rashi says, he gives us a French word, I don't know, some French pork delicacy. And he says, because she was under duress, she couldn 't be held accountable. She had to eat something It's no choice. However, the Taisvis says, "V he Hagai gave the food, she didn't eat it. that 's all Haggai brought, and well-meaning Hagai, poor Hagai, who this nice eunuch, who wanted to do things for Esther, he was going out of his way to buy her special food. he didn 't give her the regular. You know, the kitchen, the regular uh, dormitory kitchen food. He was giving her fancy food. And poor Esther Nebach is like another delivery of pork. <laughs> and he's delivering pork. And according to the <laughs> Taste first, Esther's not eating the pork. Maybe that's why she lost so much weight. I don't know. But the bottom line is this is the two opinions of two kind of polar opposite opinions. I think the one thing everybody agrees is that Haggai was well intentioned and that he cared about Esther deeply and that he was rooting for Esther and he wanted her to succeed and he tried his best to take care of her. So he, he was bringing her kosher food and Esther kind of lucked out. Minashamay they took care of her. Or quite the opposite. We have a third opinion. Rabbi Yechenon says that the thing that Haggai, the eunuch, did differently for Esther was feed her zir oinim. Zir oinim literally translates as seeds but better or more freely translated is legumes he put her on the bean diet so this could be kidney beans and peas this could be chickpeas and all things like that even by the way peanuts <laughs> peanuts are not regular nuts peanuts are not really nuts peanuts are really legumes and and that's what he that's what he fed her now how do we know why would he do that poor esther this guy is trying to be nice to her? We said everybody agrees Haggai was being nice. What, what was Haggai doing to Esther? Well, the Chain Ho'emer. So now the Gemara brings a very interesting thing that it's also written with regard, and here we're going to refer to Daniel. So Daniel was captured by the Babylonian king Nebuchadnezzar, and along with many other young men from many other different countries that he had captured and occupied and taken prisoners they took the finest and the best and they were kind of I don't know call it a West Point Academy of sorts they were trying to produce the, the leadership that would toil under Nebuchadnezzar take the talents from every country so this was Babylon has talent and they collected the nicest looking kids the brightest looking kids and they brought these kids into an orphanage of sorts and they were going to feed them and there was a couple of Jewish kids there and one of them is named Daniel so what does Daniel eat? So it says the waiter was eating the royal bread, He would give them the legumes. Now, the well the waiter was very happy because <laughs> the waiter's job, he got the Jewish table. He didn't know they were Jewish or, or cared they were Jewish, but all he knew is that they don't want all this fine delicacies, they don't want the nice bread. They gave him all the cholesterol, all the starch, not cholesterol, the starch, and and and, and they and they took for themselves whatever they could eat, which was just legumes. So they were eating legumes. The waiter was happy, but they were a little bit nervous because they knew in a couple of days there's going to be a, uh, an inspection. And if his charges would look emaciated or unhappy, the waiter would get blamed. So he was really nervous. He was happy. He got to eat everybody's food, but he was so <laughs> nervous. And what happened What happened is that when they were seen, it says, <inaudible> They looked very healthy. So the waiter was happy, it looked good because they had their special legume diet and turned out the legumes are good. So actually, this was the magic diet of the ancient world, maybe from the days of the Neil. Everybody who wanted to be really healthy would eat legumes. Now, I decided to Google this because I don't know anything about legume diets. And here's what I could vegetarian tell you, diets. no legume diets, legume diets. So first of all, there's a big 14. beans and legumes. Beans and legumes. So what I was curious about is, does everybody agree it's a good diet? The answer is no. There's a huge dispute in the world of dieting and and nutrition. However, they do say that there are six major benefits to the legume diet. And I wasn't memorizing this, so I brought the little iPad along. Okay. So number one, legumes are very high in protein. Okay? They're packed with protein. They're considered to be the best source of plant-based protein chickpeas, navy beans, they have like 15 grams of protein in one cup serving. White beans have 19 grams of protein. That's a lot of protein. So it's really important in vegan and vegetarian diets to eat legumes because otherwise you're missing the protein. That's number one. So Esther was getting a lot of protein. Number two, it promotes regularity. You know what that means? Fiber. You got to (laughs) visit. Fiber, exactly. (laughs) Very high in dietary fiber. So for example, this... uh, Uh, by Google here says that cooked lentils can contain 16 grams of fiber or 64% of your daily recommended value. uh, value. So apparently when you eat fiber it moves through your digestive tract. It slowly adds to the bulk in the stool and it aids in its passage. Fascinating. Okay. (laughs) 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 Number three. Number three. It's an aid in weight loss. Oh, this would be perfect. So Esther was doing great. Nobody else knew about good diets. And they were all gorging on every <laughs> fancy food. And Esther was uh, doing fantastic. She was the beauty queen. She, she was having a, a lot of weight loss. All right, Nutrient-dense foods means they're low in calories, but they cram tons of vitamins, minerals, and nutrients into every serving. It's a no-brainer. She not have to count her calories. It boosts heart health, which maybe Esther's uh, s- skin... Appearance of looking green would have done well with a good, a good heart, uh, would, deal, would help her with her stress. It has important vitamins and minerals, and last but not least, it stabilizes blood sugar. Now, I don't know that Esther had a problem with blood sugar, but the bottom line is she was eating legumes, and apparently it worked really well for her. Now, this article goes on to say there are side effects of legumes, that there are anti-nutrients, compounds that interfere with absorption of other nutrients, there's something called phytic acid, and the phytic acid disables the body from absorbing other nutrients so it can kind of give you nutrient heavy in one area and not in the other. But remember, Esther was in this situation for six months. So your legume diet for six months is definitely going to make you lose weight, it's definitely going to help you with regularity, it's going to give you lots of protein, and I, I think to have these problems from phytic acid, you have to like eat legumes for years. But six months later, or a year later, Esther was out of this situation and she was in the palace and she could do as she pleased. Once she was in her palace, she had a kosher kitchen and did all her things. Her way, there was no issues and she was in control. All right. So now you know what Esther's diet was. It was either just good old kosher food. That's one opinion. So everything was fine faster. At least she was getting the same food. Another opinion is she was getting pork. So according to Rashi, she wasn't very happy, but she had to stay alive. According to Teisvis, she was on a starvation diet. She must have lost a lot of weight. And according to Rebbe, finally, according to Rebbe Yechanan, she was on the special legume diet. Somebody's going to make a lot of money off this someday. And call it the Esther diet. <laughs> and feed you legumes. The Queen Esther diet. There you have it, my friends. You heard it first. The Queen Esther diet. So this is what Esther ate. And she was in that palace for a long time, like a year. And so, now that we've uh, kind of discovered Esther's diet, we now move on to the next. That's Esther's royal makeover. Right? So you, you didn't just come to the kink. You had to go through all kinds of beauty treatments. You had to go through all kinds of, um, let's just say, interesting things done to you to make sure that Ahasuerus would be just delighted. Now, there's a, there's a, a lot of mystical and deep spiritual meaning to what we're going to learn now. So this is not just about makeup and a of hair removal and skin softener. There's actually something very, very powerful and beautiful that you're going to see that comes along, plays along with this. But first, let's first learn and study the Gemara in its literal iteration. The Megillah goes on in the second chapter, in the 12th verse, it says, And so each girl would have her turn, and first they would be there for 12 months. Why would they be there for 12 months? 12 months of stress, 12 months of nail biting, 12 months of, of, of waiting and worrying, well, that's like torture. So oh, you have to understand. That's because there are beauty treatments that took 12 months. And the treatments were a daily event where shisha chadoshim, for six months continuously, you got treatments of shemen hamur, of myrrh oil, for six months. And then after was another six months of additional cosmetics and additional other beauty treatments. So the Gemara now, first and foremost, is going to talk about this oil of myrrh. What is it? What is it? What does it do? How does it work? And so on and so forth. Says the Gemara, "Shish Chadashim B'Shemen Hamar, six months in Shemen Hamur." So the Gemara characteristically asks, "My Shemen Hamur, what is Shemen hamar? We want to understand the shot. Well, first and foremost, what is it? So the Gemara says, "Rebichia Bar Aba Omar." Rebhia Bar Abba taught that is Stochas, which is stochas is called in English stacked. Now, interestingly, stacked is one of the ingredients that's used in the Katorat. Only in the Katorat it's called notov, which means drip. So in the Katorat it's called Notov, and in in um, in the Targum, Notof. Is, is rendered as or Miradachia. And there is an opinion that Mordechai's name is an aromatic conjunction of Miradachia. Just like, for example, the Jewish name Mushka is taken from musk, which is perfume, and a, a, a spice, an aroma. So Mordechai is like a name that comes from an aroma, and it's from aromatic words. And that balsam, the assumption is that it comes from a balsam plant or balsam trees, and these are bruised. And when the balsam tree is bruised, there is a, a, uh, it drips with these little droplets of, of oil. And the droplets of oil that are harvested from the bark or from the wood of the balsam tree, this is collected. And then that becomes very effective oil. It has a tremendous aroma <coughs> that's attached to it. And it also has beauty, um, what do you call them? It is value for, for beauty or cosmetic purposes. Incidentally, I just I do, I do want to point out one interesting thing about the Meltzer earlier, the Meltzer who was eating the pas bagum. So I told you it was royal bread. I'm sorry, we're leaving the oil. We're going back to the kitchen for a minute. What is what does bagum mean? Why 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 is that royal bread? So so Rashi tells us that not here Rashi and Daniel tells us that the word bagum. In the language of the Kasdium, which is the Chaldeans, means king. Now The Chaldeans are a people who live in the southern parts of Babylon, which is approximately Iraq today, southern Iraq, along the Tigris River and the Euphrates River. This is where these people lived. And the, the Chaldeans, at some point, controlled most of Babylon. And they had their own, they had their own West Semitic language which was different from the other languages. The other language for Primarily, Aramaic was being spoken in Babylonian, but they had their own language, and they left an imprint on Babylonian culture and society and civilization, where certain words were taken from Chaldean and became a part of the spoken Babylonian. So in, in Babylon, they didn't call the king the Bagam, or Bag, but they did call the food Pas-Bagam. So for some, some reason, the food maintained its name. Just like a piece of information that stuck in my head and I have no idea why. But, but the, the Khazar kingdom, or the Khazarians, which was nowhere near what we're talking about, so in the Caspian Sea, but the name of the king for them was a Kagan, or Kaganbek. That was the name of the king. The nobility would call the Kaganbek people. So there's various conjunctions of the name, like, uh, of the name king, from, from, from Caesar to Kaiser, from uh, czar, it's all similar conjunctions of the same name. So uh, in, in certain languages, bagam or gam was the word that was used for royalty, so this is the pas bagam. I wanted to share that with you. Okay, anyway, back to the beauty parlor. So, so this um, we're here with this oil of myrrh, with it stacked. It is, it's a stacked. It's kind of like interesting to see that in Esther's preparation, for her audition to be queen, the Mordechai shows up and that that may be the source of Mordechai's name also. Right? It's like, interesting. So we'll, get, we'll come back to that in a minute. So this is the opinion of Rebchia Barabba. Rav Huna says, no, it's Shem and Zayas. It's actually olive oil. But it's olive oil, hevi shlish. usually fruits that aren't allowed to ripen don't produce uh, effective juice or, or, or oil because, because they don't ripen. So the, the olive oil that we would know is extracted from olives that are very, very ripe. The riper the olive, the easier to extract the juice, easier to get oil out of it. When, a, when the olive is very, very small, it hasn't been grown 33 percent, so there's virtually no oil. It's very hard to get any oil out of it altogether. However, it is possible to obtain very, very small, minute amounts of oil. And those small, minute amounts of oil are not healthy for consumption, but they have medicinal and cosmetic purposes. And so, Rabbi Huna was of the opinion that the myrrh, oil of myrrh, is is actually the olive oil that was extracted from these very, very unripened olives, just starting their, their, their growth that were prematurely cut down, and then the olive oil was extracted from it. So it's actually, dangerous is not the right word, but if it's left for a long time, it can have a negative effect. So much so that some of the Mepharshim explained in the Megillah that when it said, the beauty treatments would be applied limb by limb rather than a full application, a full body application, because it actually could be bad for you. It had, I don't know, maybe acidic. There was some kind of property to it that wasn't even good if it left for too long. It had to be left for a very short amount of time and then taken off right away. The Gemara brings a b'risa with regard to this olive oil that we just mentioned. Tanya we learned. Rabbi Yehuda, Rabbi Yehuda says, Anfak, Anfakinun, that uh, when the Gemara talks about this kind of olive oil, it's the shemen zayas shaloi, hevi, shlish. The Anfakinun oil was used for skin purposes, for medicinal purposes, and that comes from an olive that was not allowed to ripen. So if it was not allowed to ripen and it's almost like, has like an acidic nature to it, it's almost sharp or, or, or can burn, what, what will it be used for? So the Gemara asks, So why was it used? Because it's actually harsh. The Gemara says something very interesting. The reason it was used is it, is, it removes the hair. It actually would burn the roots of the hair. So the hair would fall out. Now, if you leave it there too long, it would burn the skin. So they leave it there for a short amount of time. And I guess this was a, a, a very controlled process. You had all these uh, beauticians or, or doctors coming in to making sure these girls didn't get hurt. And they were using this like dangerous stuff in order to... It was a six-month process of probably putting it on in very minute quantities, leaving it there for a short amount of time, and removing it. And this would, instead of destroy the skin, it would destroy the roots of the hair. The hair would fall out. It would remove all the hair in the most natural way. So and it seems also that once you went through six months of these treatments, the hair didn't grow again. So this was a very, very aggressive kind of beauty treatment that these all these girls had to go through before they would see a And another thing it, it did is ma'adein, it softened the skin. So again, you're talking about the softening of the skin because it was so harsh, because of its nature, that was able to the, the so the skin became very, 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 very delicate. It's like it almost, it almost burned. They had to take it off right away. And that's, that's basically uh, what, what Esther had to be put through. And only after Esther was put through all of this, then she was able to come and to visit Ahasuerus. So the, the Gemara in the Gemara Menachas tells us that because the fruit was unripened, which in Hebrew is called bosar, I think in modern Hebrew also, because it was bosar, so because of this, it, what, it, what, it, what it did, it, it had this property, as I said, of uh, like a, almost a burning sensation. And therefore, it had to be applied sparingly and very carefully. So therefore, the girls were not left to their own devices. They weren't given this oil and said, do as you please. This had to be a controlled situation. Professionals came in. They applied it. They removed it. And this is the way Esther and all the other girls were readied for their audition with HaShverosh. So what's really interesting about all this is that Hasidus talks a lot about the concept of ketoris. Hasidus talks about the idea that ketorahs is different from the regular offerings, the regular korbanot. And that the regular korbanot, they're metaphorized as food. Korbani lachmi le'ishai. As if, in the metaphoric sense, euphemistically speaking, God's food. Whereas the ketorahs are metaphorized as Reach aroma or scent. So, in the ancient world, people used to use incense on a regular basis, not hallucinogenic incense, but just to open the pores, to have an aroma, people would, would feel, feel better, you know, people who are faint or feeling weak, would, with, with, the, with the power of, a, like what they call today, aromatherapy, they would bring out the best in them and kind of make them more alert. So, the difference between food and between scent is that food puts you to sleep and that scent wakes you up that's the nature people get tired after a meal the body's working on digestion but when the body takes in the scent it doesn't get tired from taking in the scent and from a mystical perspective this is because it says that the scent the aroma touches a very very deep part of the person a very deep level of consciousness sometimes there are certain smells or certain scents that you associate with a certain experience and you have that scent, and it can bring back a memory more than words, even sometimes more than a picture, just a scent. Or, or sometimes you, you know a person's scent. There's, there's something about the, pa- the power of scent, and, and it, touches, it touches consciousness in a very deep way. So when it comes to karbanus, it comes to the offerings in the base of Mikdash, there was the karban, which is one level of transforming or elevating the world, using the material mundane, ordinary reality for a sacred purpose, redirecting it, sublimating it, so that it becomes, so to speak, nourishment, as it were, for God, bringing forth beneficence or blessings from God. And then there's the idea of the scent. And when it comes to offerings, even though it says reach nichoch, it's a pleasant offering, but that's, you know, it's nice when food smells nice too, but that's not what food's about. <laughs> Everybody come, we smell the food, now go home. That's ridiculous. the food smells so good, let's eat. Right, the main thing is the eating. So the 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 whatever's brought on the whatever whatever's brought on the altar, necessarily has to be kosher. As as one of the later prophets expressed, "Hakriveh Would you bring it to your to your royal if you wouldn't eat it yourself? How could you bring it to God if you wouldn't eat it yourself? So every korban has to be kosher. And of course, every korban, every animal, had to be checked to see if it was actually a kosher animal. If it wasn't, we have a problem. Korban not a good korban. But when it comes to the Ketorot, according to many opinions, there were ingredients that were actually not kosher. And the ingredient that there's a dispute in the Talmud whether it was not kosher was this very stacked that we refer to over here. According to many opinions, it's the oil of balsam, the of, of the mirror oil, what could be wrong with that? Rashi says that it's another opinion that it comes from the plasma of a particular animal that lives in India. Chayesha Bahidu, which is not kosher animal. So that means we're able to use a non-kosher substance to be mixed into the Ketoret and brought before Hashem. So that doesn't sound right. Except that what's really happening, what we're really being told is that there's harnessing the world, meaning the world that's not necessarily holy or sacred but it's being harnessed and channeled for a holy purpose and then there's transforming. It's not the same. You can channel something which is parv, do as you please. You can transform something which is actually negative. So the Ketoret has a transformative element to it. In the language of Hasidus and Kabbalah there's iskafia. there is subduing the material reality of the world And then there's ishapcha, which means transformation. And transformation, the ishapcha, the transformation, represents a much higher level of serving Hashem, and it represents a much wider, a bigger footprint in the making of our world into a holy place for God. Only we can't always do that. Sometimes you need extenuating circumstances, a remarkable reality. Or sometimes you need something which is extremely powerful, so powerful that it's able to not only subdue the negative element in the material or the physical, but it actually can redirect it to transform it. So the Ketorah, at Hasidah says, has the power of taking the negative and actually transforming it. And where do we know this from? Where is it about? It's about the Myrrh. And the myrrh is also related to the name Mordechai, which is Mordechai. Now think about this for a moment. If there is a phrase that captures the spirit of Purim, a phrase in Hebrew, what would it be? No, that's a sentence. A phrase. Purim is, everything's upside down. Purim is, Purim is being able to transform, turn things around. That which was bad became good. The day that was destined for genocide became a day of extraordinary victory. The house of Haman is given over to Esther. And like that I've explained many times, the house of Haman means what did they do with the house of Haman? They turned that into yeshiva. Hine base Haman says not only Haman is hanged, but his compound. His palace is now yours. You can turn that into a holy place. The whole story of Purim is being able to take the darkest of realities and rotating and turning it around. So, isn't it interesting that of all the different cosmetics that Esther had to take or be put through all the beauty treatments, all we know is Shisha Chadoshim B'Shem and Hamar, and then Shisha we know another six months, Tamruke HaNashim. Just says cosmetics. The only one that's spelled out is the shemen hamor. Now, even though the Gemara doesn't seem to talk about a non-kosher substance, but the Shaman hamor is related to a non-kosher substance, and everybody agrees that it was very, very potent stuff. Everybody seems to agree that it would, was a very effective way to remove hair, a very effective way to make the, the, the skin very, very thin and very pliant and very soft, but also something very dangerous. You're playing with fire. You're playing with darkness. You're playing with something which could be very negative, something which could be very, very, very harmful. But you're using it, you're utilizing something which could be so harmful so that it actually turns out to be a beauty agent. In other words, the whole, s and this is the only thing that's spelled out, the rest is not spelled out. It seems that all of the other cosmetics were conventional, cosmetics that anybody would have used. This is a kind of cosmetic, this was a kind of beauty treatment that unless you were in a in a, a, cir- a situation where you had professionals who were guarding you, watching you, nobody normal would use this. Too dangerous. You had to be in that kind of controlled environment with professional, what do they call them, ethnicians? Beauticians. Huh? Beauticians? Estheticians. Es- 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 Sorry, tell me the words I'm familiar with. Yeah, right? Your beauticians and estheticians and a whole medical staff that was surrounding this, this poor lady like with people from Allah's over there trying to do it and make sure that everything would be done just right. But this wasn't what we would call a conventional method. It was a non-conventional method and in a non-conventional method you're able to use something which is usually seen maybe as dangerous or maybe as the opposite of beauty was able to be used for a positive purpose. But really, think about it. This is a paradigm. The whole story of Purim. The whole story of Purim is vina The whole story of Purim is we're in galut, and Mordechai is mishnah Lamelech. Whoever heard such a thing? In galut, and the and the king, the king's the king's prime minister is the chief rabbi. It's, 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 we don't. It's unheard of. We're in the darkest of situations. We're at the very end of the galut, which you know that the, right before dawn is the darkest, it's the darkest moment before the the light starts to shine. Before the base of English is soon going to start to be built. And in the middle of this darkest of realities, we had Vinahapochu, we had the total transformation. So, really and truly, it turns out that, that Esther's beauty treatments, so royal makeover, was symbolic of the Pura makeover. And ultimately, this is what kind of leads Esther into her, her situation as the queen. And from the royal makeover, the royal makeover meaning the physical royal makeover for the physical royal king, Achashverosh, we were able, Esther was led into being in a position where she would lead the royal makeover from HaKadosh Baruch Baruchu. As we know that every time it says Hamelech in the Megillah, euphemistically, it also refers to a Melech Malkesh the king of the universe. And Achashverosh can also be understood as Achresh, Varesh, Shalom, everything belongs to Almighty God. So, this is a very beautiful little secret that's tucked in where the part of the Megillah that seems most mundane, the part of the Megillah that seems most ordinary, the makeup, <laughs> the makeover, the, 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 the beauty, the beauty parlor. In there, the greatest mystical secret, and in a sense, the germination of the whole story of Purim, is right there in, in, in that thing. So that's, this is what this, this talks about. And I was just thinking that it's interesting how it follows Esther's diet. Because Esther's diet, according to Rashi, she did have to eat that. But you know, when you eat non-kosher food to be able to save your life, which means in, in a sanctioned way, not only is it not considered a sin, but actually quite the contrary. There's no choice. So usually when something is us or when something is pro- prohibited, prohibition means that it's tied up. It can't be elevated. But when you're in a situation of pikuach nefesh, then you would have the opportunity to be able to elevate that food. So Shmuel says, no, 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 no. He, hey guy took good care of her. Ahoy oh, he took care of her. As he understood, as he knew. Kidla de But the fact that Esther had to eat Kidla de which in a way is such a vexing and sorrowful thing for Esther, but in a way that became once again a paradigm for what was about to take place, meaning the total transformation. With darkness would become light, where sadness would become joy, where negativity and klipa, which are forces of unholiness, would become transformed, turned around, and instead become marshaled and mustered for the holiest and most amazing purposes. And that's, uh, that's our little gig about the royal makeover on, on two levels. And we're going to break over here, and the next time we study the Mesechus Megillah together, we'll find out what happens after all this preparation and all this makeover. What happened when they actually went to the king, how that would work, and then we'll find out what happened to Esther.